Hola, I'm Elias Torres, co-founder and CTO of Drift. You are listening to the American Dream Podcast. Did you know that Drift is part of just 2% of VC-backed startups led by Latin American founders? Well, I'm on a mission to change that. On this show, you will hear from leaders who have achieved their own version of the American Dream. We'll talk about what the process looked like to get there, the obstacles they faced along the way, and the work we still have to do to build a new face of a diverse corporate America. Bienvenidos a todos to the American Dream Podcast. Today, I'm excited to welcome a special guest on the show. This is a historic episode for this podcast. Someone I known for a very, very long time before either of us were entrepreneurs. Sami Shalabi is the founder and chief operating officer of Outcomes for Me, an AI-driven patient empowerment platform that helps cancer patients navigate their care and gain access to personalized treatment options. Before Sammy started Outcomes for Me, he spent nearly 12 years at Google, where he built out the Google News products to over a billion users with teams of over 150 people. Today, Sammy and I are going to talk about Sammy's career journey, has looked like, and where he's headed uh, with Outcomes for Me. Sammy, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Always great to be with you, my friend. To give the context to everybody, we were very young. Sammy and I are about the same age, and we're exactly the same age. And um, we were like young whippersnappers, 21, 22 years old, working at IBM. And, and Sammy was working with this unreal group of developers and the Lotus organization uh, here in Cambridge. I remember that was like probably 1999, I think it was like. I came, I, I think I went to Westford. You guys mm-hmm. had the, the Cambridge office. I was a, a young IBMer, first time, full-time employee. And uh, I love building things on the Lotus Notes platform. And, and so get to meet the, the, the people that created Lotus Notes. And then in the room, everybody was like, this Sammy, this, this guy is amazing. And you were building Lotus quicker at the time. Mm-hmm. I remember that day, like if it was yesterday, I remember the room, I think like you were on the floor discussing something with Ned and Miguel and, and I'm just like trying to butt myself in, like, I want to hang out with these guys. That was awesome. And look at what has happened since then. Let's talk about that. So we were at IBM and you did what? What did some crazy thing you thought of? So I, I mean, so, so a couple of it before kind of getting what I did, and I, it's probably, I think, relevant here is I'm not a U.S. citizen. I actually grew up in the Middle East came to Massachusetts, literally two suitcases. My mom put me on a plane and sent me and I went to MIT. I didn't actually come wanting to do computer science. I actually came wanting to do mechanical engineering because I didn't know what computer science was. I like computers, but I had no idea what a computer scientist is. So so kind of fell into that and fell in love with the, the domain. And this was the early days of the internet. And there's a lot of funny stories of discovering the internet and email and all that. But But after graduating, because I was on an F1 visa, it was very, very important for me to actually find a place that'll sponsor me, which is, I did an internship at Lotus, loved the place. It was a premier software organization. In those days, it was Lotus versus Microsoft. So you're like, okay, I'm, I wanted to work at a place where you learn how to build professional software at the highest level, which is why I went, I went to Lotus and and I stayed there for for seven years because that's how long it took to get for me to get my green card, and it was probably a great experience. It, it was it was a really 
because I, I, I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I think this is like an immigrant thing. You grow up and you're like, okay, let's, let's, let's figure out how to make money. Let's figure out how to impact, uh, have, a, have a lot of impact and, 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 and do things. When you see problems, you're like, okay, how can I turn that into, in, into a thing? And that's kind of like the energy I came in with, with, with Lotus with the humbleness of like learning from some world-class engineers. It was also early days of the internet. And the product that was wearing quicker, which was also called QuickPlace, was really how do you take Lotus Notes and bring it to the internet in a simple way. And so we were doing things for the very first time in those days, just going a little technical. Uh, there were no established software stacks. There were no frameworks. We were kind of inventing things from the ground up. We were still coding the servers in, in C and C++ and kind of making stuff up as, as we're and and things we talk about as being like this is nor- this is how you build world class web applications weren't a thing. This is even be- this was like the web 1.0 before before a lot of kind of and one of and one of the big things about being at a place like Lotus or IBM. This was a organization that was multidisciplinary. It wasn't just an engineering shop. It was it like I never heard of a product manager. I never heard of a UX designer. I never heard of like how those disciplines, I never heard of the word triage. What's a bug? I mean, like this is stuff not you learn in, in college, but it really kind of exposed, it was like a great lesson in how to actually build, not just like you can have good ideas, you can write good code, but like as you start to actually be part of a larger organization, there's all this stuff that happens around it so that it becomes a world-class product. Yeah. I think that that's, that's, I love that story, right? Because that's why we call this the American dream, right? Because your story is no different than any other immigrant, right? The the whole two pieces of luggage is the same thing. I came with my mother. You came by yourself, huh? Straight into school. Wow. I mean, it was actually, because I'd never been to America. I mean, I was fortunate. I I went to British schools in the Middle East, but I, I mean, I had... I understood Middle Eastern culture and British culture. I just didn't understand American culture. And uh, I mean, this is, this is also an era. This is, again, I'm like dating myself. 90s, there was no internet. Uh, the way I discovered MIT was there was a TV program that showed a robotics competition. My father was a mechanical engineer. And he said, you should go there. That's where all the smart people go. And that's actually how I discovered MIT. And Living through, I was I was in Kuwait. Lived through the Gulf War, then went to Jordan, and uh, he my my dad passed away. So I was like, it became a mission. So like, okay, how does one apply to MIT? I don't know. So I went to the there's there's a there's a section of the American Embassy called the, the Emmadist. I went there. There was a library. I'm like, okay, where's the where's the college book? Okay, where's the college book? Okay, then we put down the name of the universities. I took that down, wrote a letter, put it in the mail. One month later, you get this application. And then you kind of like methodically go through it. Okay, they need you to take the SAT. Okay, what's an SAT? How do I do that? Okay, there's actually kind of a funny story. There was a part of that application. And, and like when you're, when you're kind of growing up in, in a place where there isn't a lot of peer support, you're kind of like, okay, you get this application. You're going to follow it. There isn't going to be a box that is not filled out. It's going to be perfect. There was one box that asked for your name, address, et cetera. And then there was one that called it was email. I didn't know what email was. 
And I went to the encyclopedia. The encyclopedias, I guess, were so old. There was no, <laughs> there was no explanation. So that was actually, uh, that, that answering that question was a bit stressful for me because I could answer everything else except like email. Are they going to accept the, the 90 because I didn't know my email address? What a moment. What a yeah. moment. It's a, it's a, it's a, you're stuck because the encyclopedia doesn't have it. Nobody else around you has one. And like, who, who do you call? You like, like you got to go around the streets. Do you have an email? Do you have an email? Does anybody have an email here? Anybody Does has anybody ever know had- what it is? <laughs> this is a thing you buy. Can I go buy one? Can I go rent one? I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, so eventually, long story, it's like like mail back and forth, and it was actually a really humbling experience because it was not just like I didn't expect it, but I applied, and then it came back with with an acceptance and a full scholarship. Um, so so that was okay. like a. Yeah, yeah, transformative moment. And this is actually where, like for international students, there are very, very few universities that offer scholarships. MIT is one of them. The uh, I know, I think some of the Ivy, Ivy Leagues also do it, which is, I mean, put aside, this is just my opinion now being an American, this is America's secret weapon. They can get like unbelievable talent to come here. And, and the thing is, is when you come here, and you build a life. I mean, you end up building a life because you see the opportunities in this in, in, in this country. And and anyways, so I got my letter, and then my mom gave me a bunch of money. I had two suitcases. Flew to Logan Airport. Came out there. I had a piece of paper that said seventy seven Mass Ave. Okay, that's the address. I get into a cab. Take me to seventy seven Mass Ave in Cambridge. And then you show up and you're like, okay, let me just follow everyone to where they're going. Okay, there's a bunch of people. All right, they're going to the student center. Let me go there and figure it out. Like, hey, And then I had a much heavier British accent at the time. Hello, my name is Sammy. <laughs> I just arrived. And then, <laughs> and then it was a very welcoming experience. They set me up in a dorm. And five years later, I ended up first year transferring from mechanical engineering to CS because I discovered that. And then uh, ended up at, at Lotus. While I was a student, I was always a hustler. I always had a had side hustle. I just love, love that, that this was a mission for you because of the words of your father. That's so special. It is transformative, just the words. This is why we have to yeah. always think about the words that we tell others, right? The word yeah. that simple uh, could just change your life, right? Out of yeah. anything your dad could have ever done, that was probably one of the most important things he did. Yeah. You should and, go and, there, Sammy. Was, uh, you should yeah, go you there. Should. It was like a, a comment as part of a, watching a TV program. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, side story, that competition is called 270 at MIT. The class is called 270. And I went and I watched it in real life. Wow. And that's what we have to think as parents, right? What we tell our mm-hmm. kids. Yeah. Simple as that. I, I, told, I told my son, my youngest, he took an aptitude test that I had to take for a visa. And and he goes, what are you doing that? I'm taking this test. Come here, sit down, take it. And he takes it. And when he was done taking it, he like beat me by a point without any practice. And I said to him, you're so smart. It's like, you know, you can do computers. And he goes, no, dad, I don't understand them. I go, you absolutely can. They were like, what are you talking? He's taking CS in high school now. Great. Uh, yeah, I'm trying and, to convince and, my son to do CS. He took a programming class, but it's not sticking the same way when I was messing with computers but you you want them to 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 like have the drive have the work ethic and also follow a passion and follow a passion yeah yeah and he he likes art so what what i what i discovered he in the cs class i don't know what thank god but they, he's doing he's writing this python language to render vector graphics 
So he has code here and he's rendering this character from anime. And so he's like, Dad, look. He's like, I do the shadow, I do this drop shadow, I shift this, I do the opacity. And, and I'm like, I couldn't draw, right? But he's finding the intersection that he likes. And I'm just like, oh. So I'm, I may have three CS kids in my, in my life. Um, I, I told you about my first one a little bit. But so, so, but so that, you had that, right? You did not know your passion. And he told you that. And then tell me more a little bit about that entrepreneur hustle. Like I had that hustle as a Latino, as an immigrant of like finding ways to get the job done or doing something. But there's an entrepreneurial one about building a big business or building a business. Did you have that already or, or, or was it separate? True story. When I was uh, in high school, I figured out that I, I made like a bunch of, I mean, because part of it is like you're trying to solve problems and see what, and, and part of it's like to get like a little bit of extra spending money. So I, I, uh, I had a little program that like I kind of coded slash copied, which would basically, if you answer a few questions about your palm and the lines on your palm, it'll actually give you, I found a, like a thing that said, this line means this, this line's in that. So you answer a bunch of questions. And, and then I went to the, and then I, my cousin was at the local college and I said, Hey, why don't we offer like computer generated palm reading? And I was like, <laughs> I made like a couple of hundred bucks doing that, which was, I mean, at the like Jordanian money, that's a lot of money. Well, that, that was some real hustling right there. <laughs> yeah. So, so just like taking like, okay, it's modern, it's this. And, and so, so the concept of like hustling is like, I think it's, it's a, my, my dad also had his own business. So you kind of learn from I learned from him that like okay this was things don't just happen you have to go get them you have to go and and I used to actually do a lot of I mean one of the things he figured out this is again this is now in the 80s he figured out if you actually present because he was he, he did a lot of contracting if you present your reports or your 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 uh, your RFPs using computers not hand drawn images people think you're more advanced uh, so this is like like the connection of like, hey, technology can unlock things. So I used to do all these drawings for him using like some CAD program that I had on my on my PC, and that and then he would get get those projects. So you kind of like this was I would I mean like I'm talking about it, it's like subconsciously you realize hey, technology can give you an edge if you know what you're doing. And it can also create a tremendous amount of efficiency. I mean, even at the time, like word processing, people used to actually type with like a typewriter. And the thing is, is like if they had feedback on the RFP, we'd just go edit it and it'll be done. You, you don't have to edit the whole thing. If you needed to change yeah. something in the architectural drawing, it was a small edit, not redraw the whole hand-drawn thing. So it was just That's like a, it created like an art, like, like you realize this thing, like technology can actually drive tremendous efficiency. And I got experience with my dad, got experience. And then when I went to MIT, I discovered the internet web pages. So like the thing at the time was uh, uh, all these classes realized they needed to, to actually have websites to actually describe the curriculum. And, and that was like an insight I had at MIT. So I used to go to professors and ask them, hey, do you want a website for your thing? And this was at the time there were no tools. There's nothing like this. Right, any right. of the tools. Today you're like coding in, in VI, H VI, HTML, right on the on the you like the classes were like tilde CS, you know, yeah. fifty. That's a yeah. So I used to go around and ask the right, do you want a web page? And, and the way MIT works is like they actually will 
will cover the cost on the behalf, like the school will pay for it. Right. So I had this whole thing where I was like running around at school trying to get, and then I, I ended up hitting capacity. So then I taught some other students that I knew like how to do it. And I had like this mini consulting operation going <laughs> at, at, at MIT. And that kind of mindset has just been with me everywhere I have been. Even at Lotus, you're like, okay, what's there interesting to do? But the difference is, I would say, I think that was that was the transformation. I, I would say when, when you were asking, like, okay, I, like from trying to solve problems to like thinking at another scale. This is actually the thing I would say that was part of the MIT experience. And I would say part of the Lotus experience. And then later in my career in the startup, especially at Google, like the scale of thinking and the scale of opportunity is actually something you learn. You realize, I mean, as an individual, as you're growing and and building skills, you don't really realize your potential and the potential one, one can have an impact. And, and it's definitely been amplified through technology. As, as a technologist, you really, I mean, like, it's one of the most shocking things. A small number of people can build software that can transform the world. It's kind of nuts. Uh, some of which I've, I've been partially and I've been part of, like, like a lot of great companies. And I'm sure it was the case that you like, it started with the small nucleus and look at you now major player that's transformed how people converse that's powerful i think that that's an interesting inflection connection between two things one is that little hustle attitude that you and i share as immigrants and and growing in places with scarce resources right where you have to hustle I, i don't know my stereotype would be that the middle east is way more hustlers than than latin america i think we're more social and like we enjoy but like that, that notion of like more business, more business selling and stuff. I think there's more experience at that, I feel like, than, than it is in Latin America. I mean, one of the things, I mean, I'll, this is a true story. When I came to America, it was the first time I met Latin American people. It was, it was the yeah. first of like meeting all sorts of people. <laughs> right. And yeah. actually, it's one, one of those interesting, like a, a lot of my best friends in college were because there was such overlap in the cultures. Yeah. No, there, there is, absolutely. But, but, I'm, but I just... I, I'm underselling myself. I feel like the not as many businesses, but but the hustler of like when you are scarce resource that you have to get something done and you have to find a way, and so that's like the 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 seed, the, the, the that raw talent that we have. And I love what you said about the scale; it has to be learned. And what I'm trying to say is, I feel like an American entrepreneur that has been born here, they might have more access to learning about the scale first. And so they're mm-hmm. trying to build things just because they know the scale potential, right? The, 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 the mechanics and the levers, right? We are just, we have to go stumble our way one step at a time with that hustle and learn the scale until you know what you can achieve, right? What's possible. Yeah. But I think also that's, I mean, that's, it, that was when we came to, uh, to America. That was actually very, very true. I mean, I never heard the word entrepreneurship. I didn't know what is, I mean, I, now I call myself an entrepreneur, but I was like, I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, there were no entrepreneurship classes. The whole concept of, I mean, like everything was so foreign. Now, with the internet, with the access to information, our children are getting more and more exposed to this. And and I would argue in those, like there are now more frameworks for actually 
taking an idea and breaking it down and seeing it. I'm like early days, I'm like I didn't know how to like I didn't know what a TAM was, <laughs> or even to think about it. You're kind of like the way you think about creating businesses is it's it's all about cash flow. Yeah. As opposed to what's the upper, it's just a very different way of thinking, and that's what's learned, and and it's definitely getting better. But but that's that's I think the opportunity, especially with folks who are new to this, is like it's a it's a learned skill to to think at scale. And I would argue my of my time around this, the the scalable thinking got a few orders of magnitude larger at Google. Yeah, I mean, I mean that is... And in 12 years at Google, you walk in and like, okay, you're thinking about products and you're thinking about millions. And then you, one of the things, like one of the moments for me at Google was when I was working on my very first product there. It was actually a great environment, Dave. There was a lot of flexibility. But like we got to a million users very, very quickly. And the reaction from folks around me, I'm like, if you're a startup million, pop the champagne, we're, we're, we're IPOing tomorrow, let's go. And then at Google, the, the, all the response is like, no, 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 no. That's not like, like, that's nothing. You need to be thinking in the hundreds of millions. And you're like, holy moly. Okay, so how do you think at that scale? How do you? And it just starts to change the way you think and, and the level of ambition. And because it has implications, it's the order of magnitude of thinking because it starts to change how you triage things and where you spend your energy. And that's actually one of the things I spend a lot of time with, the, with my team at, the, at, at Outcomes for me is, like, how do we think about scalable thinking? I don't want to add 100 users or a million users or 1,000 users. How do we own the market? And that requires a very different set of tactics than growing 10%, 5%, whatever those percentages, the smaller numbers, how do you add a zero? How do you add multiple zeros to the problem? Which is, I think, I mean, it's just, it's, it, it, and, and that's, and you, and, and, and you realize that's also a learned skill. It's learned. And that's, I think that that's what we want to share with others, right? Is that to not be intimidated or be scared or think that you were not born with it. Cause that one is just, it's just a matter of learning, right? It's like, uh, I, don't, I don't know what a good analogy is, but it, it's kind of like you, you're you doing some little digging in your backyard with a shovel or with a little hand thing. And somebody that manages a large equipment can dig up way more, but it's just because they just learned how to pull two levers, right? And it's like, but they just, they got trained to live. It's not like they, they were more powerful. They just, they were exposed to it. And so you've been exposed to, to Google and it's one of the largest companies in the world. And like, wow, right? That's going to be, um, it just pushes the boundary because of the distribution they have, because of the size, because of the magnitude. And most people that just do smaller startups never get to experience and learn those lessons, right? I remember the day when I, I asked around and I didn't see you anymore at Google and they were like, yeah, Sammy left. He went to start a startup. And, and you know, now that I think about it, that, that was probably, what, what year was that? Uh, 2000, I would say 18 was, was the time where I was like, okay, let's, let's, let's do the transition. 18? Oh, no, 19. I mean, it was the right the year before the pandemic. No, no, no. I'm talking about when you left uh, IBM. Oh, IBM. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Sorry, sorry. I thought you said, you, you said Google. I left 2005, 2006, something like that. It was, it was, it was a while ago. So it was after seven years. years. Uh, uh, it was a, a, around seven years. I had gotten my green card. 
And that day I got my green card, I was like, I'm out. I'm going. I'm doing my thing. Because it was it was it was very important. Like as an immigrant, getting your status under control is a very high priority. And it's a high priority. Once that was that that threat restriction was removed, it's just okay. Now there there's an opportunity, and I connected actually with uh, one of my coworkers at, at uh, Lotus, Masi Shore, and there was an, and this was kind of like the beginnings of Web 2.0, and there was an insight there. This was the beginning of cell phones and the beginning of text messaging, and you just saw this explosion of text messaging as a new medium of communication. It's like people stop calling each other; they're just texting each other constantly, and the, the realization is like the amount of communication that's happening here, there's, there's opportunity to remove friction. And how can computing completely change that experience such that it's, it's, it becomes more efficient? We started this company called uh, Zinku with the intent of like, how can text messaging communication drive more efficiency? And we kind of invented what looks like Twitter. <laughs> Um, uh, and, and, and what was interesting about that, we even had the 140 character limit, not because we did any marketing, because it was the SMS limit. Yeah. That's where that number came from. And we, people would text in the stuff and we'd store it and you'd share it with your friends and then you'd post your updates. You can go back. And if you're following someone, you see their stuff. And I mean, like, it's very, very similar in, in, in the overall uh, dynamics. We even had the equivalent of invites, invite friends to whatever, and it'll send the text messages and, and it'll send you a report. So it was just kind of like using text messaging as a medium of communication and a medium of, of like managing your life. And that was kind of like the thesis of the company. We did very well initially. We raised the uh, million dollars at the time, which was a bunch of money. For me, it was like, I mean, these numbers were just like, what do you mean a million dollars? That's Am I a millionaire now? I don't know. <laughs> but it was it was just kind of like the first exposure to the whole VC world, raising money. I didn't know. I mean, like I heard who, who of- Who invested? Who invested? Uh, at the time, it was flagship ventures. Or like it was a dabbling in, in, in health, in, in, in consumer. This was Web 2.0 at the time. So we raised a bunch of money. We, we had, I mean, we're still operating very lean, very nimble. I mean, we were like four or five people max at the time. And this is, again, the power of technology. You can build a lot of stuff with a small number of people. And we were kind of, we did, we were slowly rolling it out on campuses, et cetera, to kind of tune the product. And this is actually also where you learn distribution is super hard. I, I think we talked about this first time founders think about products, second time founders think about distribution, because you realize it's one of the hardest things so we were kind of getting some traction. And then in the middle of like, okay, we're about to go raise our second round. Uh, Google knocked on our door and said, hey, are you, we're interested in what you're doing. You guys seem to like think about mobile very differently from anyone else we've seen. You guys look like you're building a platform as opposed to just a, a solution. And back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, it ended up resulting in Google acquiring the company. We were like a small like we were, I mean, like a few of us just went to Google. It was like two people because <laughs> they just wanted like the core engine team. They didn't want anything else. We were very, very, very lean. So that's kind of like how that, that transition, but it took a lot of work. And this is also an era where the nature of M&A or acquisitions was very different from the way it is today. 
because I've been fortunate to have acquired companies for Google. And the process they go, we, we, I went through is very different from the process I went through. I mean, we're a small little company, like a small number of people, but it was, I have never seen due diligences like this. <laughs> it was a multi-month, pro- I mean, we had agreed to terms and it was months and months and months of due diligence. It's definitely much, much easier. Oh, it's much, much, much easier. I mean, the, the financial system has definitely innovated to accelerate these acquisitions. I mean, the last acquisition I did at Google took a month from start to close. At the, and, and I mean, th- those are like on the smaller side, not the huge ones. And then the, the, my, our acquisition took eight months, which is an eternity in internet time. Oh, my God. Eight months. Is like, I would have died. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't sleep for eight months because you're pretty much waiting for the next email for the next due diligence request. I mean, wow. there's a funny story. They don't do this anymore. They, at some point, they asked, because we had a domain, they're like, okay, we need to see the terms of service for the domain. <laughs> I remember going to, what's it called? Uh, GoDaddy. No, uh, no, no, I went to, yeah, no, it was GoDaddy. But the thing is, the terms of service were so long, I didn't have a laser printer. So I went to like Kinko's, printed it out, put it in a FedEx box and shipped it to them. Which was, that was like how funny it was back in those days. But it, it, was, it was you, I think to me, you believe in IBM and another one, Kevin Gibbs going to Google, mm-hmm. right? But but you, I think, were probably one of the first ones that I knew personally that left to do a startup. Yeah. You know, it was like, he's gone. Where, where did he yeah, go? Yeah, it was an unusual thing at the time. I mean, it was very rare because you end, because a lot of tech people, you end up like at the big tech companies and they're like, you never left. Yeah. They would go to Google. They would go to Microsoft. They would go switch. Yeah, you know, they'd switch from one big tech company to, an, to another. And I think part of it is overall kind of like, family status. I, and I think I would argue part of it was also some naivete. I didn't know what I was getting into. Uh, I, I called it naivety of youth. Like you don't know what you're signing up for. You don't, I mean, like you just kind of like do the back of the envelope and, 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 and just like, I'm, I'm generally an optimist about life in general. And you're just like, okay, this is going to work. We're going to make it happen. Let's go figure it out. Oh, holy moly. I'm earning half what I used to. Now what? <laughs> okay, so can I make that work? Uh, I just got married, and you're like, okay, and then oh, I didn't really have that conversation with my wife properly, and you're like, oh, then we need to adjust. What do you mean? And <laughs> so, so it was, it was, it was. Uh, there was a lot of discomfort, but I also buried myself in the work to kind of like put that behind us, and and uh, you just put your heart and soul into it, and. And, and as a result, it like helps you focus on moving forward. And I would say, like, I learned a lot at Lotus. In those two years I did the startup, and I don't know if you had this, like, I probably learned 10 times more. Like, it was the first time I attended a board meeting. Holy moly, you have to have an opinion when you show up to those things. You have to think about it before you show up. You can't wing those things. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of that. Uh, uh, and just being around seasoned folks, you realize, okay, there's a lot of growth beyond just writing great code and great products. There's a lot more to the problem of building teams, organizations, and even great products and the str- like. All these things were new skills. But it's, but it's something to to keep encouraging people and inspiring others that you know 
having a company with two or three people, there's absolutely, that is, um, that could be a very magical place, right? Where everything, all dreams can come true in one way or another, right? Um, might not be a, a straight path, but you had that and, and look where you end up, right? 12 years of Google, right? Extremely successful, built great products. There's a lot of products that get sunsetted at Google, but you built one of the ones that is still to this day going really strong, right? That's a testament to you, I would assume, to to, to what you did at that level of scale. But I was going to give you a hard time and say, like, yeah, Sammy, just stay there. He, you know, like IBM, right? You did IBM 7 and then 12 there, two big companies. Uh, and I'm kind of happy that I did 10 years at IBM and I've done like 15 in the entrepreneurial world, right? And I don't, I don't think I'm ever going back, right? It's like, I like this world of building and creating. And, and I'm so impressed, right, by you that you had that, that short stint, you know, with Cinco, and now you're like back at it again. So tell me like what, that's a, that's, that must have been yeah, a good so, decision. Yeah, so, was, so there's, there's, there's several sides to it. The entrepreneurial hustle, those two years, Google actually was what made me, I think, very successful there. Because I just thought very differently from, it was just like, there's, it's just like the the hustle of that. And the, what what it does is it makes you much more well-rounded. And like, just kind of like just building on on one of the things you said, like from, from two years of doing your own thing will make you a better person wherever you are big company, small company, next startup, new startup, whatever it is, because you learn so much from those, because there's the, the problems you will see and solve are much more real. And the difference is there's very little like, Hey, my boss fix, make it go away. You're the boss. <laughs> so you end up having to really solve some, some problems you Normally, you wouldn't have to. So at Google, one of the, the, the things you learn scale, you learn that you can actually build products that, that can kind of fundamentally impact the world. In the case, like I did, was, 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 was leading the reimagination of Google News around, the, which was triggered by what was happening in the United States around the presidential election between Hillary and Trump. And uh, uh, the news industry's relationship with Google got really sour. It's like you're proliferating for reinforcing filter bubbles, destroying our business model. What are we going to do about about that? Which actually triggered kind of the formation of a group that I ultimately ended up taking over, which was like reimagining what 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 news is like. And and the ambition there was like we are going to actually solve a much larger problem, a societal problem. We're helping people get involved and it really kind of like, and you learn the discipline of how, like, what does that mean? What does news mean for for people? And after doing that, you kind of like, you see the success. When I took over Google News, it was a big product. And then in the one year after its launch, we more than doubled, added another billion users to the product, which is kind of crazy. But, and that just didn't happen organically. This is actually where, like I learned a lot about your a brand will get you a certain number. You actually have to think about distribution uh, in order to, to 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 reach that scale. And there was like all sorts of work we did about partnering with folks, uh, viral flows in the product, 
because it just doesn't happen. This whole organic thing, yes, it's, it, it does happen, but it's so hard and it's so rare. You have to be very, very Part of it has to be design, and I, and I think you're right. I mean, the lower bar, the entry bar for Google might be higher than most every other company. And you get that for free, but anything else after that, you have to earn it. You have to design, you have to iterate on it and, and think and innovate. If not, it's not going to be for free. Yeah, I mean, and but, which is why a lot of Google products fail, right? People think just because they're Google doesn't mean you have guarantees. Yeah, I mean, so this is, I, I learned this. If you have a thing with a Google name, you're going to get a million users. It's Then it's hard to get more than that. It's it, You actually have to be intentional. You have to think about distribution. This was like our relationship with Google Play, which was basically built on the relationship with Android. Android was exploding primarily its relationship with the phone manufacturers. Those kind of relationships are the things that drive ex- like incredible growth. And if you act, I mean, a lot of well, highly distributed products kind of did that by doing the very clever partnerships and very clever product flows to kind of get them at, at that level. But coming back to your original question, which was what happens. So, so you work on these societal problems. A couple of things happened. A bunch of family members got diagnosed with, with cancer. And being in Boston, which is kind of the mecca of healthcare, everyone's calling. Hey, do you know an oncologist? Do you know an oncologist? Is my doctor, is it right? Is what I'm getting wrong? Is it this? Is it that? And because I'm fortunate, I have a network, et cetera, I'm able to kind of help question, answer these questions. And the thing that kind of blew my mind is the more you dig into this problem, there's a tremendous amount of friction. The information on the internet is so confusing. It is incredibly confusing. I mean, like you ask any physician, they hate Dr. Google because most people's diagnoses are highly nuanced to the, to like their actual treatment is a function of their diagnosis and the, the, the test results. And it's especially the case in cancer. And to take it one step further, I actually didn't know this. Cancer treatment in the United States is defined by a whole series of nationally defined clinical guidelines by this organization called the NCCN, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. In Boston and in the top cancer centers, the top oncologists sit on the committees that define the national guidelines. And if you look at them as a computer scientist, you'll notice they look like a decision tree. You, you do a whole bunch of tests and then you go, okay, HER2 positive, one, da, 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 da. okay, this is your treatment. Da, 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 da. Okay, this is your treatment plus this if, you, if this test is true. True, and you look at them like, okay, why isn't this an algorithm? And it's not that big. I'm assuming it's still, and it's quite not that large of a, of a decision tree. No, no, it's a pretty significant decision tree. It's oh, actually it's a, pretty very, it's a pretty significant. It's hundreds and hundreds of pages per 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 so, cancer. So, so props actually, to them. Props to them yeah. that they have developed that, right? I mean, it's yes, like, yes, it's it's actually it's 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 very very impressive work. That's I think the first part. The second part that I that I found in particular interesting is. Uh, and this is like the, the it, it shows the, the 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 actual scope of the problem. The guidelines change every three months, and you may have heard the term precision medicine. And I didn't know what that meant. I just like okay, precision, like it's more precise. But actually, the more you dig into it, and it's very very relevant in in in, in oncology, is in precision medicine. What all the science and all the focus is is essentially they look at your genetics, what you're born with. Genomics, which is basically the character, the, the biomarkers and characteristics of the tumor, and those become new inputs into deciding what your treatment is. 
And all the new, a lot, almost all the new drugs are pretty much looking at genetics and genomics as a means to decide what, what treatment you're on. They're moving at a rate of, they're changing every three months because there's a, the, the science is moving very, very quickly. There's a lot of research in, in, in intensive. And then you kind of like, well, if you take a general oncologist, and this is a, a, a study that, that uh, I quote a lot, is for a general oncologist to be up to date with the latest science, they need to be reading 27 hours of working day. So not going to happen. Which is impossible. So there's, so there's a real problem there. In Boston, because you see specialists of specialists, you're almost certainly always getting the latest cancer treatments. The latest, but treatment. the latest is still like nine months behind, or, or whatever. Yeah. Right? So in Boston, it's like it's typically like in the top hospitals, it's usually the case. But when you start to go into community settings outside of the academic centers, a lot of the times you may not be getting the latest treatment. That's the first part. For the other thing that was, I think, also surprising to me is um, for advanced cancers, like state metastatic stage four, the really the best, I mean, it's a pretty grim diagnosis. The best options are clinical trials. And if you want to see another shit show, this is like, a, <laughs> there are a few thousand clinical trials. You go to the state of the art, which is this thing called clinical trials, which is a government website, try to decipher anything. And you're like, why isn't technology? Like, I spent my career pretty much trying to match. I mean, like Google News, we were seeing 64,000 new articles a minute. And we're able to get them in front of users based on their interests within, like, seconds of us seeing that stuff. Like, this is a solvable yeah. CS problem. And if you kind of which put is, that together. Yeah. Which is like it, it's solvable because it's not like you're figuring out the science. You're just leveraging the science of the few of the best and making sure making it accessible to everybody in real time, right? So, so they don't have to digest all these papers and the stuff. And you're saying like you're gonna get the latest information in fact. That's that's exactly. And this is actually like the catalyst. Like you get all these 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 family members. They're asking you for help. You're trying to untangle this. You're talking to the science, and you realize there's actually a lot of opportunity for technology to completely transform the experience at scale again going back at scale and and in the process connected with an mit classmate of mine who is from the pharma world the big question is is like okay you've got a problem is this something that can is this a business or is this just a solution or is this just a feature and after kind of spending a lot of time there is a business uh which is about helping people get on clinical trials, getting more awareness around the latest treatments. And if you approach it from a, let's build a product that solves people's cancer journey, not how to, what's their treatment, no, their entire holistic journey. And you kind of enhance it with sponsored experiences that are about helping improve their journey. You can actually make both sides work. And that was kind of like the catalyst. So I started off as an advisor with the company with around this problem. And, 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 and then you see the friction, you see the opportunity and you're like, okay, this is this, like we can actually do something transformative here. That is not about just building an oncology solution. We, we can actually fundamentally change people's outcomes at scale, primarily by empowering people to have the information. Like when people ask, what do we do at outcomes for me? The, the, the thing that commonly comes back, you're going to tell me if I go to the Mayo clinic, what they're going to tell me without me having to travel by just answering a few questions? And the answer is yes, because they're going to tell you what's in the, 
what's based on these national guidelines? What, what's 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 in the guidelines? And then and then when you approach the problem as a uh, as a technologist who enjoys building consumer experiences, it's not about just features. You need to think about the entire journey. And this is the thing. And like when you think about it, the journey. Now you need to start all adding all these other things. Because now you're creating an engaged product that people use that actually is providing value, that's providing support, that's actually helping with their emotions, that's dealing with mental health, that's dealing with compliance with med- and then and then suddenly all this stuff comes together. And it's like, oh, this is like a pretty big idea with a pretty big solution. So that was kind of like the transformation where it, it was initially catalyzed by what was happening in my life. You see a, a problem. And... The, the latter half is like, well, if that is the problem, is there an opportunity to solve this at scale? This is, again, like the thing I learned. Like, you need to think about that order of magnitude. When you think about it that way, then it becomes like a pretty big opportunity that you also f- like feel great about, too. Wow. Yeah. No, this is fantastic. Makes makes a lot of sense. And it's super inspiring, right, to to be able to recap that journey from... You should go to that school. You should go to that competition to show up knowing nothing, to doing whatever it takes, not complaining. You went to IBM, you kind of triaged that and you said, okay, I'm going to go work there because I need my visa. I need my green card, right? Then you become an entrepreneur, learn to do the work, and then you get exposed to scale, right? I mean, we, we had some scale at IBM, but you made an impact, right? Because the, the, I mean, we're still dealing with this problem with the news, right? News is, is a complete disaster. But you got to play it and, and try to solve it at the highest levels. And then you just just run into this, you know, unfortunate events, that series of events, but your mind is now thinking at scale. And now you're like, how do I solve this for the whole world? Like, I mean, it's like, if the best person, if the best doctor is just going to triage something in a decision tree that is outdated, at least I'm going to do that automatically and make the same decision for you in real time, right? And, and you can change the lives. I mean, you, you, like we're solving, we're curing cancer little by little, right, with advances. But this is the dream of AI, right, to be able to say, like, everybody gets the same treatment. You, you could be in the jungle in Nicaragua and you can, through a phone and through a text message. Right. I mean, one of the one of the, the saddest things about the actual like when a drug gets approved, it takes years for it to actually make it to the health throughout, like to actually get disseminated. To, it starts with the the top cancer centers, but it takes a long time for it to get prescribed. And that's actually, I think, our big opportunity is to help people get on these these new innovations. In the case of clinical trials, get them onto trials earlier because they're so hard to untangle and figure yeah. out. And that's the kind of stuff that actually changes people's outcomes. And the, the difference is, is like thinking about at scale, but the solution we're building is like helping one life at a time. But you can build infinitely. You, you, you can, you can build. You, yeah. you and, can and I mean, like, I mean, we've been, it's been like a great couple of years because one in four breast cancer patients are on the platform. We know this, which is great, great impact. We know we, we, we don't measure it, but we know anecdotally that people are actually using our app to get on trials and argue with their doctors. Like, no, the app told me I can get on. The doctor says no. And then they, they, like they've emailed us like your app actually got me on a clinical trial that's actually going to fundamentally. Because how, how is the doctor? The doctor has no time to like breathe or eat lunch. Yes. Right? And, and, 
And then if you actually look at the health, like the challenges in the healthcare system, the actual time doctors spend with patients is shrinking because the system's trying to make it much more efficient because their time is expensive. And cancer treatment is like psychologically, it's like a big, it's like very, very, very challenging. And most patients want infinite time with their doctor to answer all their questions, let alone the emotions, et cetera. And if technology can help make that time more efficient and more pointed, that's empowerment. And that's kind of like the... the, the, the just to get to answers, just to get to like, like at least spread it, go to this clinical trial that they're waiting for people, right? And so if you can qualify them for them, it's like it's just an amazing, it solves the problem on both sides. Right? Yeah, I mean, one of the things actually we, 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 we spend a lot of time with patient education, half the time it's like, I don't even know what questions to ask. Why is that relevant? And, and so we've been spending a fair bit of energy just like helping with the treatment. The, the other interesting thing where, I mean, we're going to spend some time on solving that is after cancer treatment, people's care transitions from the oncologist to the primary care. And typically, a lot of the drugs people take to kind of deal with the cancer are actually like, can have a lot of secondary effects that need to be monitored. I mean, some of the drugs can compromise the heart. Can, I mean, like, and that's also where things tend to fall through the cracks because the primary care isn't equipped. So we spend actually a whole bunch of, and kind of our general approach, and this is, again, uh, just kind of a, a philosophy of when you're building world-class products, first, I mean, like you need engineering, you need product, you need design. But I think one of the, 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 the critical things is you need domain experts in the space to help guide what you're building. When you kind of combine all these things, that's when the magic happens. And so we have physicians, nurse practitioners on staff, and we partner with top cancer centers. So for example, we're thinking about, we've been building our survivorship module, which is what happens after cancer treatment with Vanderbilt Cancer Center with Dr. Deb Friedman, who is on the committee that's writing the national guidelines for survivorship for cancer to kind of transform those guidelines into technology. This is again, like the, so a lot of good things happen in healthcare. They get into guidelines, but then the transition from guidelines to technology is I think where the opportunity is and where the friction is. And, and sometimes uh, people don't even realize technology can play a role because they've been working in a certain way. And I, I love the connection, the arc, right, from you editing CAD design and the basic innovation was really just the editability of this thing and not how to reprint it, not redraw, right? which I experienced the same typing my, my stuff with my first computer. And, and you think that that would have been gone by now, that ability to that efficiency. And here you are effectively saving That's the fair, time yeah. of, a, of a human being just going through a decision tree and getting a copy of a decision tree and you're like digitizing it right to be able to navigate a complex tree so it more accurately takes the person to the to the spot so we have the answer in front of us but we don't know how to distribute it and how to monitor it and how to coach it and how to scale the delivery of it, yes right? scale the delivery i mean i mean just to go back those decision trees are actually clinician facing they're not patient facing because they're just incomprehensible oh yeah absolutely like if, yeah and, it, and it, think it, a big part of innovation is taking that and turning it into like consumer friendly language that they can understand but but it is impressive right that we have like sometimes medicine blows us away how simple it is right but it's like it's impressive that they have created such a thing that is has highly effective rates or effective rates better than 
than just having a, a customized doctor just for you, right? They're not going to figure it out on their own. It's, they're putting together everybody's research into one place. Which is amazing. Amazing. And, and so love that. And, and I love, like I said, that you continue to pursue the dream and you got off your ass at, at Google. You, were, you could have been staying there being busy. And it's an encouragement to people, right, to think about opportunities and things that they run into their real life. And chase, go after them, you know, and 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 not because you could have delegated this problem to somebody else, right? but you took it on, and and that's that's such powerful and speaks so highly of you, of what you're willing to do, and it's what a what a pleasure and privilege of of knowing you, and and seeing a little bit of the arc of your of your life, getting to know a little bit of the earlier part of it, and uh, and continue to know you and see see how you're going to change the world. So we, we still have 20, 10, 20, maybe 40 years left. You, you put, you, you're kicking my ass to do more. Yeah. If you have an idea, you see a, a friction point in the world. There's always, if you've got the time and the, the, the drive, the there's health, there's a yeah. lot of problems. I mean, this is actually one of the, one of, for me, the most challenging things about the problem in healthcare is because I'm like, I don't come from healthcare. Everywhere you look, there are problems. There's, Problem. I wouldn't say problems. Like it's like problems that can, technology can remove friction, and that's actually one of the biggest challenges. When I talk to the team, it's like everywhere you look, it's very, very easy to get lost in all the problems of, of, of healthcare, and it's really trying to find that like path in the forest to kind of have impact. Again, good, scalable thinking. You need to kind of, like you, you can you can tube on the wrong yeah. things. We we are so scared of, with our kids and stuff like that. I always think as a parent, right, of removing friction from them. But friction is never going away. I mean, the goal of human beings is to remove friction because it just creates itself and creeps upon us. But if you don't learn to deal with friction, how are you going to ever be successful, right? Yes. And, 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 and it's not just deal with friction. It's also being able to identify it. To feel it. Like sometimes yeah. you, people are numb to it, right? And, and they're okay. but but that immigrant thing is, is I think that that's what we're susceptible. Part of the hustle is the ability to detect the friction, right, and be able to say, why am I? You know, it's like this is not working, right? It's like so. Wait, it's it's kind of like they say salespeople, they're like water coming down the roof. Water finds the path of least resistance, right? Always going down, and so like that's what the hustle, hustle is, right? It's like when you're like moving like water. Because you're like, I want to avoid it. <laughs> and, and I think the other half of it is that, especially if you've come from a developing, if you've been in a developing country, the, the level of friction is just like another level. <laughs> like this, I mean, I mean, first thing, actually, this was a, the experience for me. I mean, getting a passport in the United States was like, for me, an, like an eye-opening experience. I mean, getting a passport in another country has been, is, is like, a, I mean, like it's, it's easier to go to the doctor, get a colonoscopy and come back than sometimes to get your first passport. Yeah. I, I mean, I was, when I, when I got married, I was going to Ecuador with my wife and that was 20 years ago. And they changed the law that I'm from Nicaragua. I didn't need a visa at that time when I checked, but when I got married, they changed it that I needed. So they did not let me get on on the plane. And so like, and, and I just went around driving around Miami 
And in about less than 24 hours, I had gotten my visa yeah. because I'm a, because I'm an immigrant hustler, right? But but I literally went to places. I don't have a network, but yet we found the consulate in some building of Ecuador, and and then who was there? It's funny because this guy came before me, and and they said the bell says do not ring the bell more than three times or something like that. And the guy goes ding 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 ding, <laughs> and so the person comes out and says, and he goes, I need my visa, stamp it, and 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 the woman goes, no, we can't do that today. Come back tomorrow, because the guy violated the rules. It's uh, like when I saw that, when I like waited there and then I brought the pictures of my wedding and they knew my wife. And so like, and like, I'm in the back of the embassy. <laughs> it's like, it's like, that's how you get stuff done. But it's like, I went from like no visa and I no car, no Uber, no phones. This is 1998, you know? And I was like, find my way to get to the country. Right. And, and, and when we were getting out, same thing, her, her ID had expired from Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And they and then we had to leave the airport while we were past customs, go out to some, you know, some ministry thing, and we had to get it done. And I had to do some illegal stuff to like get it done and come back to the plane so we make our flight. But it's mind blowing. Yeah. Compared and- right now, I took a picture at CVS, send it to the post office, and they just mailed me my passport. Yes. Yeah. It's it's it's. I mean, it's just that it was such a transform, and then you realize, okay. So, because we've seen the stuff like oh, and you've you've seen the extremes. So, whenever you see extreme stuff, you're like, it can be efficient. Yeah. And then once you learn technology, you're like, oh, we can use tech to remove all these friction points. That's awesome! 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 Great stories. I feel like we're gonna have to do more stories. Thank you so much for being on the episode. Historic episode. I hope everybody understand. Like I don't know. I hope they get all get a glimpse of the of of how impressive of an impact you made on the world, right? And that you continue to do. Oh, appreciate it. From from a kid that didn't even have an email address. Yeah. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> we had great stories. Thank you so much, Sammy. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to the American Dream Podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss when a new episode drops. If you like this episode, please leave a six-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're interested in learning more about my American Dream mission, subscribe to my newsletter linked in the show notes.